Well, good morning, and welcome to Mission View Church. If you don't know me, my name is Evan Miller. I'm a deacon here at Mission View, and uh, my beautiful wife, Jamie, and I have been a part of Mission View since it began three years ago, and um, it's, it's been just so encouraging to see the church grow. It's been encouraging just to see the path that God has us on. Um, it's been exciting, too, because We've seen, just even in our family, just um, us growing as a family, too, through God's Word, us growing physically as a family. About a year ago, my daughter Adeline was born, and now she's in the children's ministry, and it's just fun to see, you know, that aspect of, mini of ministry that's happening here to children at Mission View. So it's just exciting. So it's just neat to look back to see God's faithfulness this morning, and I, I, I just am excited. I counted a privilege to stand before you this morning and to share the word of God with you. So we are continuing our way through the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. Today we're in chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Turn there if you could. And this morning we're talking about working for the gospel in times of discouragement. So Paul is writing here to um, the church in Corinth, and it's a very painful ordeal for him. Generally, when we think about writing letters or notes, we think of notes and letters being encouraging. You may write a note or a letter to your boyfriend or girlfriend or to your spouse. Soldiers may write love letters back to their spouses back home. Or you may write a letter, you may get a card and write something on it nice for your grandma for her birthday or for your mom for Mother's Day. But this is not a happy letter. This is not a joyous letter. Paul's letter to the, Cor to the Corinthians is a painful letter. And it causes him pain to write to this group. He was beyond frustrated with them. He was deeply hurt by them. And he poured his heart into ministering to these people for two years, blood, sweat, and tears. And in return, what did the church do? They attacked his character. They attacked his reputation. This was on top of all the other problems that were happening in the church. Last week, Adam talked a little bit about this. And, and he, the way he described it, it was like a circus. It was like a circus of just bad things happening. The Corinthians were doing just these, these just atrocities that we can't even imagine. They, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were sinning sexually, openly in the church. People were taking sides. They were forming cliques. They were causing division. It was a lot like high school. They were shallow. They were unruly. They were unthankful. And now one of the reasons he wrote this letter is because the false teachers on top of this, the false teachers were beginning to take over the church. Imagine that. The very church that Paul gave two years of his life, his leadership to, is now being overtaken by imposters, by phonies, by fakes, by frauds. Paul knew these people by name. He knew the Corinthians by name. He knew their families. And they were giving their attention to false teachers. They were replacing Paul with, a false, with false teachers. These false teachers, they called themselves super apostles, which, by the way, isn't really that creative of a name. Kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever heard of the cereal, Grape Nuts, okay? 
Grape nuts, I don't know if you look at it, it's a dumb name for cereal because there are neither, I don't know if you know this, there are neither grapes nor nuts in this cereal. It doesn't make any sense, okay? Like Fruity Pebbles, Fruity Pebbles is a good name because it looks like Fruity Pebbles, right? But these super apostles were more like grape nuts. They were neither super nor were they apostles. So a better name for them, we're just going to call them like they are this morning. They're, they're the false teachers. Nothing super about them. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing that makes them apostle, an apostle of God. I mean, that name doesn't even look good on a t-shirt or a bumper stick or anything. Even if you had flames behind it or skulls and crossbones, super apostles, not even a good name. But these are the types of people that are taking over the church and peddling a false gospel. They were like the health and wealth preachers, prosperity preachers, promising that God wants you rich, promising that God wants you to feel good about yourself. They were teaching that if you follow Jesus, your life will be better. So the Corinthian church, see, they hear these teachers, and they like what they hear. It tickles their ears. They start following these health and wealth teachers, and they're promoting them in the church. They massage their egos. And they bought into the thinking that God, you know, maybe God does want me happy. Maybe God does want me healthy. Maybe God does want me comfortable. And the tough thing about these false teachers, okay, so a lot of this is taking place in the middle of the Roman Empire, right? So these false teachers, they were very skilled orators. They were eloquent speakers. The way that they talked, it made people listen. And, and so you know, they, had, they, they would just, people would sit and listen, and it would, their, 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 their authority would just overtake people. But their version of the gospel did not produce a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Their version of the gospel was politically correct. It was non-offensive. It was a gimmick. Their version of the gospel did not produce fruit. It was a false gospel and a lie. So the theme of 2 Corinthians seems to be more of a letter where Paul is establishing himself as an apostle. He's explaining what he's meant to do. He's talking about his role and reestablishing himself in that church. And he's asking the church to purify itself. So our passage begins, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Today it begins with a therefore. <clears throat> and it's important that we understand the context of last week's passage, the passage that Adam preached on. Paul was talking about a lot about the, the new covenant versus the old covenant. He was talking a lot about the new covenant, which is grace, comparing it to what we used to be under, which was works, which was death, which was the law. And he's bringing up things last week, too. He's talking about the Moses. He's talking about the veil. He's talking about glory a lot. He mentions glory a lot. Last week, like in verse 10 and 11 and all over the place, talking about glory. So the context going into this 2 Corinthians 4 and keeping in mind the whole book of 2 Corinthians he is kind of trying to reestablish himself as a true apostle of God, and he's reestablishing the gospel in that church. See, the health and wealth teachers, they were questioning Paul's authority. They accused Paul of being the phony. They were spreading rumors about Paul. They were saying, look at Paul's life. I mean, the dude has been shipwrecked how many times? How many times does he go to a town and they beat him up and they leave him for dead? Like, is that really the power of God? That's what the false teachers were saying. They were promoting that. If he's so powerful, why, why doesn't his life look great? They were saying that Paul was doing ministry just so he could inflate his own reputation, so that he could get favors from women is what they were saying. 
And it couldn't be further from the truth. So imagine being in that situation. Here, Paul is at the deepest point of exhaustion. He's weak, he's tired, he's frustrated. He is at one of the darkest places of his ministry. He's having his faith questioned, his position, his God-given position attacked. The Corinthians are replacing their love for Jesus with a lie. He has every reason to be discouraged and to retire, to quit, to ride off into the sunset and call it the end. But he doesn't do it. In fact, in this passage today, we see three reasons, three reasons why you face, when you face discouragement, that you should continue to be true to the gospel and to preach the gospel. You'll see three reasons why we don't quit. So verse one, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So our first reason, first reason why we preach the word of God in the face of discouragement is because this ministry comes from God. This ministry comes from God. So the, the phrase here, we do not lose heart, okay? The phrase, we do not lose heart, can be described as quitting something you know is right. It's when you have a mission and you're supposed to do it, but you just don't want to do it anymore. It's the kind of discouragement that makes you want to quit your job or go AWOL. When we are discouraged, when we are tempted to quit, we need to remember that the source of this gospel ministry comes from God. God is in the gospel. God is the gospel. The gospel ministry was not crafted by human hands. The gospel ministry was not developed by the human mind. The gospel comes from God. God is the author of the gospel. God ordained day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, how the gospel ministry would unfold throughout history, throughout Jesus, and come to us and to our lives. The gospel ministry is not an accident. It's not a byproduct. It's the central focus of the scriptures. It's the ultimate celebration of mankind. And the gospel ministry is the full display of God's mercy. You want to see how merciful God is? You want to see how loving God is? You want to see how kind God is? Look at the gospel. That God would send his only perfect son, his most prized possession, so that he would be crushed by human hands, nailed to a cross, and experience the full wrath of God so that sinners could be saved. That's God's mercy. That is the full display of God's mercy. So that weight, that weight today, you should feel. Because we have received this gospel ministry by mercy. We have received this gospel ministry because of God's mercy. We, we, are you kidding me? We get to be ambassadors because of his mercy. People are ministers of his grace by his mercy. 
He chose the human race to be the beneficiary and to, to proclaim the gospel ministry to others. And that baffles me because we don't deserve it. If we would interview for the position, we would be rejected. Nothing qualifies us to receive this gospel ministry and nothing qualifies us to share the, in this gospel ministry with others. And I always wonder, why does God trust us with this? Why does God trust people to proclaim the gospel? We're so unfaithful. We're so wishy-washy. We're so namby-pamby. We get distracted. Now, our, our, look, at our, look, at our, look at us on our cell phones. When you, when you, go, when you, go, when you go out to dinner, people are just on, on their phones. We're, we're so distracted. No matter where we go, no matter what we do, we have no credentials and our track record is poor. Why doesn't he just allow the angels? Let the angels do it. Or why doesn't God create robots? They'd be perfect at it. But the answer here is in verse 1. He gave this ministry to us by his mercy. And that's encouraging because he chose us to share in this gospel ministry not because of the wisdom in our minds, not because of the money in our pockets, not because of the background of our families, not because the rules that we follow, but instead he chose us to be messengers for him because of the mercy of God. The apostle Paul, he knows this well. Paul's call to ministry was based upon God's mercy. Paul despised Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. Paul wanted to destroy Christians. But by the mercy of God, Paul came to faith in Jesus and God allowed him to be a minister, devoting his life to Jesus and serving him for all the rest of his days. So because this ministry comes from God and because this ministry has God in it and, and, and because this ministry is based upon God's mercy, we do not distort it because we have renounced shameful and secret ways. Verse 2 says this, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So again, the teachers in the Corinthian church, right, the false teachers, they were using dishonest tricks to get ahead. They weren't giving people an honest view or a plain view of the gospel or God's word. They were building up, inflating their own reputations by promising things that the gospel doesn't offer. They were tampering with God's word, and their version of the gospel wasn't real. It was counterfeit. It was a knockoff. Like a shady used car salesman or a crooked politician, they tampered with the truth of God, yet people believed them and followed them. People were attracted to their shenanigans to their bells and whistles. They were like those, you ever see these people on TV, the as seen on TV people, promising the latest gimmick. Oh, it slices and it dices and it will cube these things for you. It'll make your life better. This will change your life. And you buy it and it doesn't change your life. It ends up in the garbage. This is what these false teachers were doing. Preaching a different message. It's not real Christianity. And again, they believe if you follow God, you get stuff. The real message of Christianity says that we follow God because we get God. 
We follow God because we love him. And because we follow him, we will suffer and we will face suffering in our lifetime because of the name of Jesus. Which, by the way, suffering was absent from the false teacher's version of the gospel. If you follow Jesus, you will suffer. So let that test, let that test messages that you hear today because false teachers, imposters, prosperity preachers are still around today. They're alive today as much as they were back in Paul's day. But if, they, if, if this gospel doesn't produce a saving faith in Jesus Christ, if this gospel does not produce true fruit, if there is not suffering that is a part of this gospel ministry, then it's not a true message. And this is tragic because the Corinthians removed Jesus from their hearts and accepted a counterfeit in its place. They replaced the apostle Paul as their pastor with men who distorted the truth. Just crazy to think that would happen. That'd be like on payday. You, you get paid, you cash your check, you get cash. That'd be like just telling your boss, I'll just go ahead and photocopy my money. Photocopy my check. Photocopy the, the cash. Give it to me. That's good enough. That's what they were doing. They accepted counterfeits as truth. So we don't operate like that. Instead, we set forth the truth plainly so that it can be understood. The end of verse 2, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The plain message of the gospel is what we preach, and the simple message is this. We believe that everyone was born into a world that is broken beyond repair because sin entered the world because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, because they sinned. Just like parents passed down their traits from generation to generation, Adam and Eve's sin was passed down to us. And if you've ever spent 30 seconds or more around a child, you know this. Stop hitting your brother. Keep your hands to yourself. Go to your room. Tell the truth. Naturally, children don't want to do good things. Naturally, we want to misbehave. It, nobody has to teach them that. So on our own, we want to do bad things. On our own, we naturally want to rebel against God. The Bible says that our sin is so great that we cannot repay it. We cannot do enough good to earn God's forgiveness because God is a righteous judge and God must punish sin. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus from heaven to earth to live a perfect life so that he would die on our behalf, be buried, and rise again on the third day, defeating death. So we believe that when Jesus hung on that cross, we, we believe that, that, that God poured out the full wrath on Jesus. And this means that Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He died in my place. God treated Jesus as if he committed my sin that I committed. And when I say I trust Jesus, I fully believe he says who he said he was. God in the flesh. And so God wipes my slate clean of my past, present, and future sin. God forgives me. And God takes the perfect life that Jesus lived and he transfers it to my account. So that when he looks at me, yes, he still sees sin in my life. But he doesn't hold that sin to me. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So that puts me in a right relationship with God so that I can know him, so that I can follow him, so that I can serve him all of my days. That's the simple message of the gospel. We repent of our sin, we submit to Jesus, and we follow him. We preach Jesus plainly as he is, 100% organic, 
No sugar added, no artificial sweetener, non-GMO, because this ministry is from God. We preach it plainly because people come to faith by hearing the word of God because the gospel is alive. What does Hebrews 4.12 say? For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Oh, I love that verse. The gospel is alive. The gospel is active. The message of Jesus is for all people, for all ages, for all time periods, and all locations. The gospel knows no bounds. It can go wherever it needs to go to whomever needs to hear it. No matter the language, no matter the country, no matter the people group, it is not bound by geography or man-made borders like we see on maps where we see restrictions, borders around states, around countries. It's not bound by continents. The gospel has no limits and the glory of the gospel cannot be exhausted. No matter how much you preach the gospel, reflect on the gospel, remind yourself of the gospel. If our hearts are right, it is captivating, it is satisfying, and it is deep. The gospel is not a dead message. The gospel is not like the movie Weekend at Bernie's. It doesn't need to be propped up. It doesn't need to be dressed up. It doesn't need to be drug around. It's not dead. It's alive. The gospel has feet and it can move. The message of the gospel is sharp. It is sharp like the surgeon's knife that cuts beneath the skin and the outer layers of tissue so our outer layers can be peeled away to expose our heart the gospel message can go and cut us to the heart. It goes where no other messages can go. And because the message of Jesus is a life-giving message that comes from God, we can have confidence knowing that when we plainly lay it out, when we plainly talk about it, we share it with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our children, that they can follow along, that they can track with us. And it's ultimately between them and their conscience. Let me tell you a story. I recently reconnected with a young man who was in my student ministry. I was a, a youth pastor for a number of years, and I had him in middle school. He moved away, and um, you know we, we reconnected. He only moved like 20, 30 minutes away. So we went out to dinner one night, and we just caught up and just, hey, you know, how's life? How's school? How's your friends? How's this going? And then towards the end of dinner, you know, I, I, I asked him, I said, so you know, hey, hey, man, where, you know, where are you at spiritually speaking? What do, you, what do you think about this whole Christianity thing? It's been a while since we've talked. And I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the answer that he gave me. He, he looked at me and he said, you know, Evan, I, I, I believe that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe that God is real and I believe the Bible is real, but I'm, I'm not ready to devote my life to that. I'm just not in a place where I'm ready. So, I mean, time out. What, how, how do you want to respond in that situation? Because I think sometimes, if we're honest, we want to prime the pump. Okay, well, maybe you're not. We want to rationalize his response. Like, maybe, maybe you're not that bad off. Like, okay, you know, maybe if we just say this prayer and ask God to come into your heart, something will work and change and, you know, things like that. And I, I think the best, the best thing that I can tell him is that I, I will continue to pray for you. 
I'm here if you want to talk, if you want to text. But, but when you are ready, cry out to God and he will save you. So it's, it's, not, it's not for us to prime the pump. It's, not, it's, it's for us to continue to build relationships. It's for us to tell people about the gospel. It's, it's for us to build these gospel relationships. We are the messengers, but it's between the person and God as to when they repent. Like it says here at the end of verse 2, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The second reason this morning we preach the word of God in the face of discouragement is because this ministry has an opponent. That's the second thing we see. We preach the word of God in the face of discouragement because this ministry has an opponent. We see this opponent in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's a lowercase g on God, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the, Lord, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we preach the word of God in the face of discouragement because this ministry has an opponent. Not everyone who hears the gospel responds favorably. We know that. Some people believe Jesus is old-fashioned. Others believe that he is offensive. Many would argue that following Jesus is foolish. The world thinks that people like you and me that wake up on a Sunday to go to a high school to worship an invisible God, like they think that's crazy. And I think sometimes Christians, well-meaning Christians, I think sometimes they think, well, maybe we need to do a better job at marketing the gospel. Like, hey, maybe let's, like, let's like try to make the message cooler. Let's try to make it more hip. Let's try to make our church service cooler. Let's try to be more trendy, maybe more like lights, fog machines, more confetti. And it's, it's tempting to do that because we all want to be liked. We want people to follow Jesus. We want people to come to Jesus. But remember what the Bible says here in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays in the glory of Christ. So it's not that the message isn't cool enough it's, 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 the, it's that people see the gospel to be foolish because they love their sin and because Satan is blinding them. Satan is the god of this world with a lowercase g. Satan is actively trying to destroy you. Satan is, his purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy, and the, works of, the result of his works are leading to death and devastation. So Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan is keeping them in the dark. He's putting a veil in front of them and the gospel. And the influence that Satan has on a, on a society is a staggering one. One that caters to the feelings and to the senses of unbelieving minds. His agenda is to keep people in their darkness so that they will continue to walk in the darkness. So regardless of what that is, whether it's through gossip or bitterness or envy or destruction, whatever's necessary to cause people to can be continually bound by sin and love the darkness, that's Satan's objective and method of operation. 
So naturally, because people are blinded by Satan, naturally, because there's a veil between them and God, they naturally don't want to, they don't, they naturally don't want the things of God. There's no interest there. It'd be like trying to feed a steak dinner to a vegetarian. They are offended by God. A desire to follow Jesus comes when God opens the mind of an unbeliever and gives them the faith so that a desire is there. And even the faith to believe is a gift of God, like it says in Ephesians 2. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know that. You see a progression over your life before you knew Jesus and the thoughts you had before Jesus and the thoughts you have after Jesus and how your life is improving, how you're growing in holiness and growing closer to him. So here... What I'm trying to say is human efforts don't, don't work. It doesn't matter how charismatic you are. It doesn't matter how likable you are. It doesn't matter how influential you are. Satan is working to blind unbelieving people and keep them in darkness. Your techniques won't help you penetrate the blindness of those who are being veiled. And the Bible says you can't persuade somebody into being a Christian with a man-made method because they are blinded by the devil trying to argue somebody into the faith or trying to persuade just based upon man-made methods, it would be like trying to put out the fires of hell with a water pistol. God is the one to open blind eyes. This takes us to our final point. Number three, we preach the word of God in the face of discouragement because this ministry is powerful. You want to see blind eyes open? You preach Jesus. We preach the word of God in the face of discouragement because this ministry is powerful. So I want you to think about this. I want you to bookmark this verse. So the next time that you're discouraged by whatever happens in your life, whether it's a, whether it, it's a disappointment in a relationship or discouragement at the workplace or, or whatever it may be or an illness or a sickness or a death, I want you to bookmark this place in your Bible. So the next time that you're discouraged, you're not, you're not prone to wander or prone to question the power that's in the gospel. says here, verse 5, for we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we preach the word of God in the face of discouragement this morning because the ministry is powerful. Consider this, okay? Think about this. Throughout all creation, we see God's power in nature, right? In the very first pages of the Bible, God creates things out of nothing, which is amazing, and he speaks where there is darkness, he speaks and creates light. That is power. That is amazing. And all throughout the book of Genesis, we, we read, we see God creating the heavens, creating the earth, creating the people, creating the sun, moon, and stars, creating the animals. We see God's creative power all throughout the book of Genesis, right? We also see that today. We see God's power in, in the rising and the setting of the sun. We see God's power in the warmth of the sun. And the fact that the sun stays suspended and like doesn't fall or doesn't just blow out into the atmosphere and we don't have the sun, like we don't even think about that because we trust God's power and we can see God's power, right? We see God's power in a storm. We hear God's power in the rolling thunder. We see God's power in lightning. 
We see God's power in the erupting of a volcano. And we feel God's power when we stand at the foothills of a mountain and we look up and we know that he is big and we are small. But notice this. Notice this. Never once in Scripture, never once in the Bible, does the Bible call these things, these created things, the power of God. Yes, all of these things that we see show the power of God, but the Bible never labels creation as being the power of God. Instead, when the Bible talks about the power of God, the Bible associates the power of the God with the gospel. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, to the world the message of the cross is foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says that Jesus is the power of God. And let me take this one step further. The Greek word that is used here for power, right, the Greek word in, this passage, in these passages that's used for power is dunamis. Dunamis is where we get our English word for dynamite, powerful, explosive, miraculous. The gospel is the dunamis of God. The gospel is the dynamite of God. If God's dynamite is in the gospel, I want it. The gospel is powerful. Jesus allowing his body to be beaten, to be crushed, to be abused, nails driven through his hands, God pouring out his wrath on his son for our freedom and for our benefit, the cup of wrath that was poured out on Jesus that should have been poured out on me, but there's no wrath left in that cup because Jesus satisfied the full wrath of God Jesus now lives in me and changes my heart. That is power. That is power. So God's power is best displayed in the gospel. And this, this power is not just any regular kind of power. It's a new creation power because it changes us. So just as God spoke light into existence in the midst of darkness, he can make his light shine in our hearts because the power that is in Jesus. Guys, it's not about us. The gospel is, is, is about God. The gospel removes the dark veil from our blind eyes so that we can see the light and savor the glory of Jesus. Therefore, we must preach the word with clarity so that others may come to know Jesus because it's a fact, 10 out of 10 people die, and if they die without knowing Jesus, they will be lost for eternity. So if the Bible calls the gospel of Jesus the power of God, how much more should we remind ourselves daily of the work that Jesus has done? How much more should we rehearse the gospel in our minds daily so that we don't forget, so that we don't lose heart? The gospel is not a one-time message that you hear and you repent and you graduate and you move on. I think C.J. Mahaney says it best. Never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond. Its depths will never be 
exhausted. This morning as we close, the power of the gospel means many things. Because the power, because there's power in the gospel, this means many things here this morning. Like this, because the gospel has power, my sin has been wiped and I have been justified before God and by God. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Because the gospel has power, sin is no longer my master because Jesus broke the chains. Because the gospel has power, my identity is in Jesus and not my situation. Because the gospel has power, I now have perspective in my trials. Every trial that I face has been allowed by God so that I may become more like Jesus and used by him. Because the gospel has power, my righteous standing before God is not determined by my daily performance, no matter how poor or inadequate it may be, but instead it's based upon Jesus' perfect performance. Because the gospel has power on the days where I fail and I sin, when I am at my worst, I am encouraged by the gospel of Jesus because of his unfailing grace towards me. Because the gospel has power, parents can be encouraged to know that the success of their families is not based upon whether or not they appear to have it all together because none of us have it all together, but instead success is based upon whether or not we live out the gospel in front of our children. Because the gospel has power, I will not complain about the sliding morality and increasing evil in America. Instead, I realize the gospel has power and it is fully sufficient to change the hearts of people in my neighborhood and this country. Because the gospel has power, I will not be nervous with what happens on Tuesday, November 8th, because the government does not have new creation power like Jesus does. Because the gospel has power, I am not ruled by my emotions. Instead, I can face tomorrow knowing that Jesus' promises are true. Because the gospel has power, there are no orphans in God's kingdom. I am adopted, I am cherished, and I am loved as a son in his never-ending kingdom. Because the gospel has power, the church will not fail. The church is the only institution in the world that has that promise. Because the gospel has power, if tomorrow morning Satan tried to destroy the church by gathering together all the demons, their best plan wouldn't work, and they'd walk away disappointed, and the church would remain, remain victorious. Because the gospel has power, I will share the gospel so that people living in darkness may see the light of the glory through Jesus. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for your gospel. We thank you so much that you are in the business of saving sinners. We thank you for this message. We thank you for the power that's in it. That Lord, that even when we become discouraged, we, we know that there are promises in the gospel to change hearts, to change minds, to change lives. Father, thank you for trusting us with this message even though we fail and we, and we fall and we, and we disappoint. So Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we, as we prepare to, 
to partake in communion. Remind us of the work that Jesus has done. Don't let us leave here unchanged and empty. Keep this message tattooed on our brain that the gospel is real, that the gospel has power, that the gospel comes from you. We count it a privilege to be involved in this ministry. So thank you, Father, for working in our hearts. And in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Mission View. Just a couple announcements this morning. Sorry. All right, first we are going to talk about the fall retreat. So if you are in sixth grade through 12th grade, this is apparently the most exciting trip of the year for our youth. Uh, my kids personally love it, and Hannah and Adam have a great time. So if, you, if your kids are interested in that, you can contact Adam or Hannah for more information on that. It is November 6th, 4th through 6th, thanks. Um, $75 is due by October 23rd, so that is when that's due, but they do have a great time with that. Um, secondly, we are talking about the baptism, membership, or baby dedication. So if you are interested in taking the next step, you can check out our website, or you can call us at the office, and we're happy to talk to you about that stuff as well. And finally, we are talking about if tables. So this week, they start tonight, actually. Um, we have four different nights, I think. I don't remember. Four nights, yeah. So it's a pretty simple concept. There's six ladies, four questions, two hours. Um, you get to go to someone's house if you're not hosting. I'm, I happen to be hosting, and you get to eat some yummy food or have dessert. And it's really not designed to be intimidating or embarrassing, or you're not, you're definitely not um, demanded to answer questions, but it's certainly a way to bring together ladies and form that community and that bond. So I really encourage you to, to pick a night and spend some time getting to know some ladies of our church. So that is it for tonight, or for today. I hope you all have a great week. And oh, when I reach out, you're all.